0: Homestyle Green, Episode 154, Adaptive Architecture and Other Insights from California. G'day, Matthew cutler Welsh here from Homestyle Green. This is the podcast dedicated to inspiring people to make a better place to live. This week, I am bringing you an interview I recorded last year from uh, Matthew Barron, who is at Barron Studio. And he's in California, and he's got some uh, a range of insights in a, from a range of different projects that he's been involved in. We go cover everything from c- containers through to modular design, through to rotating buildings, and all sorts of uh, other interesting design um, innovations. Something he calls adaptive architecture. So, before we get into that, just a quick shout out to our sponsor for the show is Proclima. Um, Thank you very much to Proclima. Really appreciate their support. And uh, you can appreciate them too if you are building a home um, that you want to be of any reasonable performance. You need it to be airtight and you need to look after moisture in that uh, building envelope. So definitely check them out, proclimber.co.nz. Now, I started out in a conversation with um, Matt Barron about uh, bushfires, amongst other things. Uh, forest fires and extreme weather and whether that's something that we're going to see more and more of. I was thinking about this the other day that we kind of hear about forest fires more and more. Is it becoming more common or is it just becoming reported more often that we're getting these extreme fires and extreme conditions and, and, and long dry periods in places like California?
1: Well, you know, you you hear a lot about that, but if you read, you know, uh, Mike Davis was a professor of mine in college, and that was wow, twenty years ago or something yeah. at this point, and he talked about the ecology of Los Angeles many years ago, and and there was this cycle that was um, uh, um, there would be a drought and then fire and then flood and then right. it would repeat, and yeah, yeah. it's sort of the the consequence of building in the conditions that that we that we build in, that we create cities and in, in places where maybe they're not not necessarily meant to be, but mm. that fires and floods and and droughts are sort of natural course of, of um, you know uh, natural course of the ecology. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I also think that and you know, it's uh, it's also true that the more people that move here, the more pressure it puts on natural resources. Um, the cities in California continue to to grow and people continue to move to the area, Mm -hmm. which is partly why we're so busy. Um, you know, but, uh, I I think that those things combined with, you know, climate change and, and and other issues that are out there creating all kinds of trouble. Yeah.
0: I want to come back to your journey. This is a question I usually start with, which is, why do you do what you do?
1: Um, yeah, it was. I was thinking about that question actually, and um, you know, I think it's the answer is I don't know. <laughs> I, mean, I think that. Reasonable. I think that um, no. I think that it's it's something that you that I'm drawn to. I think that. Uh, I don't. I don't know that I necessarily had a choice in it, and I don't know why it is that I'm drawn to it. I think that you um, are drawn to things because you may be genetically predisposed, but also you have, you know, your family and and the influences that bear upon you um, when you're growing. And I've just always felt drawn to to art and and creative practices, and I feel that it is. Um, it's a joy to do the work. So when you're in the right space and you're creating something, I think that uh, it's a a wonderful place to be in. It it just brings a a certain amount of happiness and euphoria when you're sitting and designing and sketching or seeing that work come into reality when you're seeing it uh, built and realized and you're, uh, You have the opportunity to get involved in the design throughout that process from the time that you have a dream and you wake up one morning and you have this idea and you run to the desk and you put it down on paper and um, create a model of it and and then take it to your client and work out the city issues and and then get into the field and see it built. that entire process is is part of that creative act, and it's something that I that I that I couldn't see myself doing anything else. And I think that that's that's a common refrain. That's something you hear often with architects.
0: Yeah. So now that you've built up a decent sized practice, where you got is it eight of you in the, your team?
1: There's uh, we we have a kind of flexible um, situation where we have maybe six or seven of us that are full-time employees and then another three or four of us that are consulting. So not those three or four people are, are off and on depending on the, the needs of the firm. Right. The, the firm and you cover,
0: the and whole, sort of, you cover the whole range from, uh, uh, single family housing, multi-unit housing, uh, through to commercial and we'll, we'll come on to robots and, and other experiments. Uh, a little bit later. Yeah. But you yeah, started... Robots. We can talk about that. Yeah, you started in 2009, which I have spoken to a few people who kind of finished their training, came out, um, or have been doing in the scene for, in your case, 15 years. What was it like in around 2008, 2009?
1: Well, as far as the recession... Yeah. It was bad. Um, in fact, it, it sort of worked out in a way that I had left, the pra- I had been practicing for 10 or, or 15 years, and um, decided that I wanted to rethink things. I was doing some evening sketching and drawings, and just in, trying to invent, which is you know kind of leads into a discussion about the robots. But right. I had done I had done some work entered a competition and um, won and uh, had an idea that I could develop, take this a little further and went back to school. And when I came out, uh, there was really essentially no work. And I was in the middle of a development deal. So the the mm-hmm. image that you see on the logo is essentially an abstraction of this first house that's on the website and labeled as the folded house. And uh, that house was a, a, a project that I did uh, everything from purchasing the land to doing the design to selling, selling the house. And it was just a horrible time to be doing that. And it didn't, it didn't do too well as a developer. I was a failure at that, at that point anyway. And, um, what did happen though, is that it, it, uh, got some attention from other local developers. And I think that they hadn't really seen anything like this. Uh And, and uh, saw that it actually did do okay, even in a recession, and brought me on to do some drafting and some other work with them. And then that is really what launched the practice of this little house, uh, because other people saw it and saw that we were doing something different and started commissioning us and asking us to to work with them.
0: Right. Yeah. Because Uh, you you say it didn't do well, but even coming out even at that time is probably doing well. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's pretty much what had happened. We paid the bank back, so I yeah. still have a relationship with, with the bank. And you know, yeah. <laughs> excuse me, we lived we lived to fight another day. Uh, so yeah, we we kind of came out without you know being bankrupt, which was a good day. And there were a lot of people that closed their offices and were going bankrupt, and developers that were shutting down, and it was it was some pretty heavy fallout from that. So you probably benefited
0: from not having very high overheads at that time. It was just you do, doing your thing, and you, you kind of just had—you didn't have many expenses. Um, yeah, and, it,
1: true, it truly was. Yeah.
0: And and now things have developed, and you've you've done very well. Uh, you've got a a very good practice. What's the market now in terms of architecture? How is it still a very niche? Uh, market? Do you still only deal with a, a small portion of people who are buying houses or or building houses?
1: Well, a lot of our work is being done with uh, developers, large and small developers. So, what our our um, client base is really small, one person companies that do anywhere between a single house that's being rehabbed to maybe or five. I think our largest project with that size of client is maybe 10 houses. And then we have some larger clients that uh, are bigger companies that are doing multi-unit from 100 to 150 units um, and then maybe 20, 30, 40 units that we're starting to see. So our our uh, client base is primarily developers. but We are seeing homeowners coming in and asking more and more, we're seeing homeowners come in to rehab a lot of what they're either about to purchase or what they're living in. I think that um, we also get a lot of people coming in asking us to design something ground up, primarily people that are coming over from San Francisco. They can't afford a home over there anymore because it's it's really ridiculous. The market is so overheated. And there are a lot of tech people coming into San Francisco, so they're a little. And they're coming into Oakland and they're seeing our work, and they're getting outbid even in Oakland. And then they come to us and say, "How can we? How can we build one of these homes?" Um, and so we'll advise them. And I haven't—I've seen a few that have started to happen, but it's—it's—it's it's, it's an, it's an honest process. It's—you uh, mm. know—it's not for so the faint of heart. It takes a lot of. Um, oh, it takes a lot of commitment. It takes a lot of effort to, to find land and buy it and get the yeah, financing yeah. and, and approvals and everything. Yeah. But so, so we're starting to see people do that as
0: well. Just before I get into talking to Matt Barron about container uh, housing, um, here's a quick message from Dennis Dowling. Now he is a proponent of Proclima, and I asked Dennis last year why he likes using Proclima products.
2: There, there are several different products on the market, and I suppose Proclima um, benefits from brand leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, also, they have um, quite a good R&D process. And I suppose fundamentally, I'm fairly risk adverse. So while I'm very open to trying new things and looking at things differently and trying to create a new way of, of getting from A to B, um, I don't necessarily like doing that on untested or untried products. Yeah. and Proclima has, you know, a very long time of being in the market. So while it's relatively new to the New Zealand market, it's been in the market for a long time and it's in a lot of very large markets and it does very well. And and as a result of that, it has a system that goes with it. It has a process to follow. It's that you can see videos on how it works. People have an understanding of it. It's a relatable um, product to those in the industry who are building in this space. Um, So as a result, Um, It's very easy to get any information that you want on it. And further to that, when you come across something, because New Zealand loves to build bespoke architecture, when you come to something that's a little different or unique, oftentimes if there isn't a direct um, comparison that's been done before, there is at least the knowledge resource bank to get that information to you um, that addresses your specific concern.
0: Thank you very much to ProClimber. You need to check them out if you are building a house of any sort of uh, decent performance. And uh, you can find them at proclimate.co.nz or proclimate.com. Now, let's get on with the interview with uh, Matt Barron from California. You've done some um, container stuff, some work with containers.
1: Yeah, that's exciting. The first container arrived on site yesterday. I was... Out there watching it be being uh, dropped off. So, yeah,
0: what's the motivation behind
1: that? The to use the containers. Yeah, um, you know, I think it started off as a as a, a cost effective way to accomplish what what we're trying to accomplish. I think it was also a manner of, matter of. Um, of uh, expedience. i mean they were they were readily available they don't need to be um, framed over an extended period of time they can be just dropped into place uh so uh, time and money i suppose yeah but um i think that uh there and there are so many they're they're really readily available um you know i think that the concern that, that comes up for me when you're doing something like that is that, you know, as I sit here and talk about adaptability and and uh, the, the idea, the design notion that you can conform to a set of site conditions, specifically uh, when you start talking about prefabrication and things like containers, they are not site-specific designs. They're things that are designed somewhere else for something else and mm. you drop them into place. But I do find that with our container project that we're doing now, that you treat them as building blocks. You don't treat them as a singular thing. And when you're able to do that, especially in this project of the size we're doing, you can begin to orient them in different directions and use them almost as pixels in a larger image. That in that larger image is something that is site responsive. It's adapted to the to the local climate and the local site conditions in terms of its orientation and circulation and general layout so yeah um you know we're managing to come up with site-specific solutions even using prefabricated
0: modules as containers right so even though it's a fairly res you could view it as a restricted dimension and um there's a lot of flexibility in how you put those together absolutely definitely and, and a lot of
1: what we do is is built site the site built as well. The things that surround the containers, the yep. stairs, the walkways, things like that, landscaping.
0: Um, on Always. your you you've got a a blog section your website and and uh, current project is going up the how do you pronounce it P- Piedmont? Piedmont project. Yes,
1: that's right. P- Piedmont project. That's right.
0: That what's the uh, what is the construction? It, it, it's a, is it completely timber?
1: Yeah, it's all types. So most of what we do here is wood, stick uh, frame construction. It's all um, uh, type five construction uh, up to about stories is generally the height limitation.
0: Six um, stories, did you say? Three. Three. And so is Correct, that the case yeah. for, for that development? That's a, a three story all, all well, for
1: the. The majority of it, it is three stories. If you you can get a fourth story by going to type five B. So actually, the the project, uh, the rear of the project, the townhouses there has a little penthouse on it as well. Right. So if you meet certain requirements, you can add that that fourth story. Uh, a lot of what we're doing in the bigger projects though now is starting to be concrete. What they call a podium project. So we do um, one level of concrete and that allows you to do four stories of wood on top of that. So you can get up to a five story building with some of the larger projects that are built on concrete podiums.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned uh, um, indoor-outdoor flow um, before and um, we have talked a little bit about the quality of of glazing. Are there any other things that you would recommend for people if they're just starting out on a project, um, either a renovation or a new build, are they the sort of main things that they, as a client, should should think about?
1: Yeah, I think that you know, I think that one of the things. It's sort of a more maybe blanket answer in that you really have to study the site, and I think you have to spend a lot of time on the site and and see where the sun is coming up and where it's going down and how the shadows are being cast and where people are walking by and um, where cars are are driving by and how fast they're driving by and you know, where the street lamps are and where the trash cans are. I think that, you know, you have to do a certain amount of observation and we do the best that we can. I mean, we certainly are a commercial operation and we can't spend endless hours on a site taking it in, but uh, we've also learned to do it pretty rapidly. I think that what I used to teach in school when I was still lecturing and, and teaching studios at Berkeley and at the Academy of Art was really an extended site analysis. And people mm-hmm. would just go out and gather data. And a lot of the, even my own work, the robots that are there and the mapping projects that are there were about gathering sound data and UV data and pollution levels and um, whatever information you could gather all connected to a GPS data point so you would know exactly where you were collecting that data. And to really try to design a project around that information. Wow. Um, um so I think that
0: yeah. yeah, let's talk about robots. What what are you doing with the what are you, how are they coming into your practice?
1: <laughs> Sorry what how how do they
0: What are you doing with are robots? Ta-
1: how how, are, how how are they taking over my practice? They haven't yet, but um <laughs> I think that um, the the robots were really about, um, as I was saying earlier, that I had gone back to school after having done this project in the evenings where it was a, a rotating, it rotated on two axes and it would essentially unpack itself and continue into this rotating object that would al- allow it to adjust itself to any given site condition. So it would rotate. Uh, a, a different skin into place in the winter than it might have in the summer so that it was getting more or less heat gain or light and you could vary the thing over time and it could reorient itself to build conditions and uh, wind conditions and whatever, whatever it might need to adjust to. And um, that led me to uh, about a year-long investigation into the possibilities behind that and it was a two-fold analysis. One was taking uh, GIS data and in these mapping analyses and trying to understand uh, site conditions through that and understand cause and effect and, or potentials, you know, things that you might expect uh, to be caused by something sometimes were not necessarily, and, things, and other relationships that you might not have expected did exist. And then it was an attempt to respond to those those conditions. So, the um, I looked at uh, transforming architecture that might, in one particular case, follow the edge of a freeway and plug itself into the various spaces that exist along a freeway corridor, and try to, say, pick up on what opportunities were in those sites. To not necessarily fix them, but to amplify them into things that were maybe an asset, so if there was a there were a lot of truck traffic going through to the port, uh it might provide not to say well we should eliminate trucks because they pollute, but it might provide a biofuel station or something that would incrementally uh benefit a community,
0: yeah, and
1: I think that A lot of that adaptive uh, analysis that we were doing in those robots did start to translate into the architecture that we were doing that we're actually building. We didn't have a lot of developer clients that were doing speculative homes signing up to build robots on the side of the freeway, but we did have developers that were open to the idea that uh, architecture should adapt to its, its site conditions.
0: And so, so, we're not very, likely to see houses that rotate on various axes on by themselves anytime soon, but the, <laughs> the general learning from that you'd say would be coming back again to that. there's a very strong theme here about that relationship uh, to the environment, which sounds a very cliched in architecture, but you take it quite seriously, and practically you're talking about. What advantages has any particular site got? And, and they might not always be that obvious if you, in that example, right yeah. next to the highway. basically. Think-
1: I think that you know it's one thing to say you know we watched the sun pattern, but it's another thing to say we we looked at where the trash was lying yeah. and you know where people people sat on a bench and and threw their McDonald's bags or whatever. And so if you're looking at it at the context and maybe uh trying to look at it in a less conventional way or trying to look at it a little more closely in a in a in a way that maybe is unexpected, you can learn things that are uh, unusual, and that might start to inform the design, and in, in also in unexpected ways. And it sounds right. like uh, you,
0: you, with the example of the people loitering or trucks going past, you don't necessarily sit down and say, "This is a problem. How are we going to deal with it?" You say, "That's correct." What yeah. does that? What does it mean?
1: Yeah, I think that one of the things that I am is some of the values that, especially in real estate, you see placed. as a where I used to work in a firm where they said, okay, when you are designing, you should draw a line to the Golden Gate Bridge and you should draw a line to uh, Mount Tamopias and you should draw a line to, I don't know, Quake Tower. And those yeah. are the three most valuable real estate views you can have. And, you know, for me, when I built, even the first house I built, I think next door was a half-framed, burnt-down, uh, garage, yes. and uh, to the back to the back of the house was a maybe 150-foot skyway of uh, the what they call the maze, where the uh, freeways all t- twist together to yep. get onto the yep. Bay Bridge, and it's beautiful. I mean, it, it's truly uh, spectacular, and you just have to look at it in a, in a different way, and yep. I think that a lot of what we see is sort of uncommon beauty in these neighborhoods, and we've been in neighborhoods that are unconventionally beautiful since I started the company. I think that when we were doing the robots, that was something that I was looking at then. And it just so happened that we continued to work in those neighborhoods. And we're looking at things that, you know, people, uh, don't necessarily, it's not their first reaction to think, Oh, that's a beautiful, or this is a, a rich, um, neighborhood and rich I think rather than meaning a wealthy neighborhood but guys, i mean rich in its diversity or in its culture or in its its sort of dynamic interaction yeah, of yeah people with one another
0: yeah very good hey um very interesting to talk to you matt um now before we go, I have to say that uh what you have had some very interesting clients and for anyone who's set up their own website recently there's a good chance they will have used wordpress and you have designed the headquarters for automatic is that correct
1: yeah that's correct uh, we did do their headquarters and uh which
0: looks like a gymnasium um, it
1: it's it, it, sorry it looks like it's what
0: a gymnasium inside
1: a museum
0: no a gymnasium like a uh oh yeah just a big yeah open space. well it
1: was Right. So it was, that's an interesting one. It was a, um, it was a a, a Thai boxing gym and we essentially had gutted the space. And the interesting thing about WordPress, uh, as I understand it, is that they're a small company about um, nine months out of the year or the vast majority of the time. They're a small company of maybe 15 people, but several times, once a month, perhaps, we'll have people in and they'll share the space and we'll grow to a hundred and once a year, we'll grow to a thousand. Wow. So speaking, speaking of an adaptable space, it really needed to be that. So both in terms of its kind of overall layout and the design that we brought through it was really supposed to be about that adaptability. Uh, And it fit our design ideals pretty well.
0: Yeah. Interesting. And and that's probably a, 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 a sign for the future as well of both commercial spaces, but potentially residential spaces as well, and having that greater level of ad- adaptability.
1: Yeah, I think you definitely you definitely find that in both types of spaces, and we, think we try to bring that to the table when we're yeah. when we're designing.
0: Matt, how far um, do you extend with your work? Do you uh, just work locally, or um, working beyond California?
1: Uh, Primarily California. We have a handful of projects going on in Los Angeles right now. We have uh, some projects going on outside the East Bay. Uh, the core, the sort of real core of the work is in uh, Oakland and San Francisco. Um, but of course, we're we're willing to go anywhere, and it's worked out. The LA work has actually been um, very smooth, and and no and no real hiccups for it having us not having a real uh, local presence there. So yep. with tech, technology and things now, we can get things done just about anywhere.
0: Where's the best and place? We're where's, the, that we're, uh, where's the best place for people to find you and connect with you?
1: Well, I think the website is uh, you know dot com, and uh, there's contact information there. There's a general mailbox that that usually gets read much sooner than than my mailbox these yep. days. So, right, that's the best place to go.
0: Awesome. Hey, well, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Matt, and doing some very uh, exciting stuff, interesting stuff on the fringes, but uh, I really like the way that's being translated into practical, uh, quite um, aesthetic uh, solutions as well. So uh, thank you very much for your your time and and your insights.
1: Yeah, thank you for, for having me. I enjoyed talking with you.
0: Matt Barron there from Barron Studio Architecture, all the way from California. Some innovative ideas there and his concept of uh, adaptive architecture. So um, definitely check out their website, baronstudio.com. That's B-A-R-A-N studio.com. I'll put a link in the show notes for this episode. That's uh, episode 154. You will be able to find these notes at homestylegreen.com forward slash 154. Thanks very much for tuning in. If you did enjoy this episode or if you'd like to send me some feedback, I'd love to get some uh, ideas, thoughts on the show, topics for future shows. You can email me matthew at homestylegreen.com. I'd also really love it if you could head on over to iTunes and leave a rating and an, even a short review over there. It would be fantastic. Helps us get the message out and uh, helps this show get more listeners, which is a great thing because that's the way we can get more houses that are built better and uh, just a better place to live for everyone. Thank you very much. My name's Matthew cutler Welsh. This is Homestyle Green. Now go make a better place to live.